Hey, everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy. I am your resident nerd and smart guy, Johnny Morrison. And this is our co host, musician, rock star, filmmaker, and, and resident dumb guy. I, Christian, I feel very uncomfortable calling my friend a dumb guy. But I do understand that that's the gimmick of the show. Well, it's not just a gimmick. I mean, this morning, literally, I was looking online at current events, and I realized I am the biggest sucker for a conspiracy theory. I mean, I love them all, and, I'm, and I get into them. And then it kind of makes me feel a little dumb. So here I am. Yeah, I mean, even the president of the United States loves a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh, 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 man. I, I, I could be classified at that level, except for I don't ask people to drink bleach or... Oh gosh, I just, uh, or stop taking temperatures. I, you know, yeah, seriously. Yeah. Oh, did you find any good ones when you were searching the internet? Well, I think we're going to talk about one today, <laughs> but you know, like back, like I was born, I'm made for being the dumb guy because I was born, uh, in, in a top secret air force base in the middle of Mexico. And so I began with this like conspiracy theorist blood inside me. Like my birth certificate says, rural New Mexico it has no city just that's its own rural. kind of conspiracy theory <laughs> maybe we should start a conspiracy theory about whether or not Christian Surge is even a human you might you might be an alien yeah you know what I'm ready for that <laughs> you know I'm ready for that and that is actually a real conversation but if you're listening welcome back <laughs> if you're if you're listening welcome back each week and now for the next 23 minutes today we're gonna have a conversation about culture current events and politics from both a smart and dumb point of view. So, hey, thanks for listening. The first thing we want to talk about today is the city of Asheville. You sent me an article about that. Yes. So just uh, end of last week, beginning of this week, the city of Asheville, North Carolina, did something that's kind of fascinating and phenomenal. They approved a resolution apologizing for Asheville's participation in the enslavement and subjugation of black men and women and families during slavery and during the transatlantic slave trade. And then they included in that resolution a decision to invest in resources to combat generational wealth inequality for black families. And a part of that, they're creating a task force to develop a plan to provide what they're naming and what is commonly referred to as reparations for black mm. residents. Now it's not just a check and it's not necessarily formalized yet, but they are formulating a plan to provide reparations for black community members in Asheville, North Carolina. Like, how do you even begin to repair the damage? And, you know, like some people will like Christian, it's not so bad. You know, uh, a, a black person can be whoever they want to be. And I, and I go, um, I don't know. I, I went to this museum in Liverpool once. It's a slave museum. It's very depressing. Uh, rightly so. In Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Liverpool um, was where the uh, a lot of the slaves, when they were gathered up around the world, they would come to Exchange Place, and it still is actually called Exchange Place, oh, where they would exchange and sell slaves. And so they built a, a museum where, you know, bills of sale, and they would be like, Charlie, you know, has fits, working cotton, $800. And so, yes, reparations should be made. At least I agree. Yeah, well, so I think it's an interesting question, right? Because it's it's getting a bit of more mainstream dialogue on mm -hmm. whether or not the United States government should issue reparations as like a whole, as like a federal policy. And you do, I think what you just said is like you see a lot of pushback because people are like, uh, no, everything is equal. 
people are on equal ground, hmm. but it misses what you just named, which is that there is historic and systemic realities that black citizens of the United States are still facing and still dealing with. There is still to this day, massive wealth inequality. If you compare white families to black families, that what white families are far more likely to have wealth and a substantial amount of wealth just compared to the exact same kind of family who happens to be black. And as you walk through history, well, it totally makes sense. Slavery, uh, Jim Crow, redlining, uh, not getting access to the GI bills, all the things that were used for white people to build wealth were systematically withheld from black families. And so they were not able to build wealth and often were uh, forced to pay more as opposed to build wealth like white families were. And so then the question is, it's like, well, do reparations repair that damage? I have two problems with this article. And, and the first problem is I'm not sure I believe it. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I like right now we're in such a, a time where people are politicizing science and race and uh, just in general belief, you know, like I saw the other day a picture of a little uh, of a white girl wearing a mask that says I can't breathe. Um, and she was hanging it and saying, I don't want to wear this mask, just using this. Um, and, you know, I mean, and then, and then I hear that, you know, the Black Lives Matter are a Marxist organization. But then when I see all of this being politicized as if we can believe in it or we can't believe in it. Right. Like, I wonder about this article. Is it just lip service? Are they just saying mm -hmm. it again? Right. Are they just. Uh, giving us a chance to believe in it or not just to save face? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question because it doesn't, like the article, like I will post it in the show notes, the article from the New York Times and from NPR, but it does not specify what reparations will look like for residents mm -hmm. in Asheville. So there's, it's a resolution to form a task force to then decide what reparations look like. And they're pretty sure it's not going to be checks, like just direct stimulus money. So it'll be investments in education, investments in black owned businesses. The, the language they've used is um, helping people develop generational wealth. But kind of to your point, that doesn't mean anything until it means something. Yeah. I mean, it, it always makes me nervous when I hear, hey, we're not going to pay for these reparations. We're not going to go in and uh, take a neighborhood and, uh, you know, rebuild it. We're not going to uh, erect a statue in front of in, in Oklahoma and Tulsa where red summer happened, you know, it's when I, when I hear this, I go, uh Oh, this like in 2008, the big bank bailout, right? Mm. If it, it was clear that if they would have paid Americans, uh, you know, $120,000 or something, that's what they could have paid every American, the amount that the banks took and the banks ended up buying these bankrupt loans and forcing people out anyway, because they knew they could sell the homes again. So they took the money and then sold the homes that they purchased the, you know, with, with the money right now, we've got, uh, um, Wells Fargo buying, um, $500 billion worth of, of bank loans that have been defaulted on because of COVID. And, and they are taking that COVID money that they got to buy those loans and then kick people out and sell them again. So is this Asheville article a tricky way for the mm. Asheville government again to just stick it to them? Hmm. I see. Interesting. So the, the question you're asking is like, is it, is the way they're going to quote unquote invest in black communities to actually give the money to say large corporations instead of 
local black families or small black businesses. Yeah, I mean, hey, we're gonna build a we're gonna build a library, and this library is gonna be right in the center of town. Well, maybe it happens to be just mm. on the border of the quote white and black area of the town, and maybe it helps them more. Maybe they line their pockets. I don't know. Call like that's this is this is where my mind goes. Right again, sure. conspiracy theory. Sure. Well, that that's not that conspiratorial. There is a long history in the United States of, in the name of helping actually doing a significant amount of harm. I mean, if we think about Nixon's war on drugs, which were then carried on by the Reagan administration, it says the game and the purpose of the game is to end drug violence, drug usage in the United States. What it's actually used to do is to criminalize, prosecute, and subjugate black community members. Hmm. Right. And so it's like the, and I think you might even be able to argue that people thought it was helping uh, or the crime bill that even Joe Biden passed that was that he was like key in passing. Who does it hurt the most? Yeah. Black Americans. Do you think we should pay reparations? Uh, yes. And what would they be? What would they be? That's a great question. I, I do think that we should pay reparations. Um, I think that when we look at how the historic and systemic inequality of the United States and what, and then how that operates today and how it creates uneven playing fields, Hmm. then I think reparations is one of the ways, not the only way, but it is one of the ways that we can invest and actually begin to raise the tide in America for uh, black Americans, actually give them a chance to build generational wealth, uh, which would lead to inheritances. And I think one of the ways that you could do that is through, um, direct checks, like actual money in the bank. Yeah, I, I, I believe that. I, um, you know, you, you see other countries, I don't know if it's Sweden or Germany, um, you know, where they actually paid their salaries instead of the large corporations, and it worked. And I guess it's yeah. a big grand statement, but it worked. Yeah, totally. I mean, even thinking about the stimulus checks that we received during COVID-19, like a lot of families received stimulus checks during COVID-19 and we did not see the kind of economic downfall that was predicted hmm. to so, I mean the economic downfall of COVID-19 has been really intense. Like even in our own home, we've experienced it, but the checks made it that people didn't drown and become overwhelmed. And so you take that, you take that same notion, but you stretch it over 400 years of history and say like, it actually might still be able to do something positive. Yeah, but when I read this article, that's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying mm-hmm. the checks. I'm saying this. Um, uh, we're not going to write in stimulus checks, but we're going to, you know, rebuild and repay. So I think the notion and the fact that they stood up first and they said, hey, this, we want to do this. I think that's great. My, I'm hesitant now, especially in this, in this time to see exactly what uh, is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably good. That's probably a good kind of hesitation to have when you see these kinds of stories. I think reparations matter. I, I think that um, there should be something done. And this is, you know, this again, I didn't grow up with, um, I grew up with everything pretty much in my back pocket. Hmm. And, and when I say that, I mean, I grew up in white middle class and small town mm-hmm. and, and, but you know, with white privilege. So my point of view is skewed hmm. for sure. For sure. Well, it, it's good that it's also helpful to name that in some ways too, which is like, the fear, I think, for some people is that reparations means less for some and more for others, hmm. right? It's like taking away from some to give to others. But that's actually not the truth either. If you, 
if you could invest in black communities, black families, black businesses, so that there's generational wealth, wealth that's inherited, that there's folks who actually have the ability to make more of their lives. What that does is that puts more money into everyone's pocket. And so if you're only looking at it from like a simple, does it cost me or does it make me money kind of situation? It doesn't cost white families anything. Mm-mm. I mean, I guess like there's, you're right that there's like a chance that taxes go up, but at the end of the day, you're investing more money into the, the economy. Well, I guess we'll see exactly what's going to happen and if anybody's going to follow suit on this. You know, as I think about this uh, idea of stepping up first and things that we just, we haven't ever stepped into, uh, I read an article about um, something that I do think has happened before, but I think people are perceiving it just as bad. Back in the 1980s, I was dental assistant for my dad. I was, you know, like, I don't know, 13 to 15 years old. And HIV was the big scare back then. And it was this Mm. virus and we had no idea what it was and people were freaking out and we were trying to figure out where it came from. And then during that time, my dad being a dentist, he wasn't uh, wearing a mask. He wasn't wearing gloves. You know, nobody was. It was just this. And I'm not even sure if doctors were like like a a family doctor, right? They just came in and they treated you with no gloves and just their hands. I mean, it was a different time back then. And after this HIV scare, people started to have to like let let you know if they had HIV, if they're HIV mm-hmm. positive, and then if they did, people were refusing them care. Mm-hmm. And so the government stepped in and said, um, "Yes, while well, you have to check, yes, you cannot uh, reject them for care." And it was at that moment that we all started wearing masks and gloves. Mm-hmm. And in this and in this article, it's from Forbes. It's out of Rockland, New York. So Rockland County, they threatened people with fines if they didn't disclose valuable information in cooperation with COVID tracking efforts. So 100 people got together, and then several of them contracted COVID, and they wouldn't even admit that they were at the party And when, pe- when the authorities tried to ask them. So Rockland threatened to fine them $2,000 if they didn't comply. And mm-hmm. so they all came forward. Is that the United Order? Is that the microchip in our in our skin? Um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> okay, so the question you're asking is: Is what we see in Rockland, like them charging people with two thousand dollar fines, is that a prelude to like a larger conspiratorial government takeover? Where, like Big Brother, like this is yes. this is we're seeing it. Yes. <laughs> yes. You always put it in such good words. So, okay. So the question is, is it, so that, is it this, the beginning of a conspiracy to take over? Um, that's a good question. I think I, so I am not a conspiracy theory person generally. That's not, my brain doesn't go there the same way, but I do think that you're right in that during COVID-19, during the police protests, in the streets and in so many other moments, but these specifically, like there's a real big revelation. I I do think that you see the power of government authority gone overboard. Hmm. Like the state and the power of the state does not exist for its people. It exists for the preservation of its own uh, sovereignty and authority. You know, the mayor came out and said, our job is to protect the people. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing in the name. That's what he's doing in the name of finding them is I'm protecting the people. Yeah. 
And I, I just I just went and looked back, and I, I love the Constitution. I, I think it's a great document that we can dream from, and and it tries so hard to set up um, something that we all can believe in and try to accomplish. I don't think we've got there yet. But I, I looked through the Constitution, and I saw 30 enumerated powers of government, and protecting the people was not in it. Huh. It's interesting. I think that protection language is often justifying language for control. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is this is a bit of a segue or a, a, a tangent, but it makes me think of how men often talk about women. Hmm. And it's a, that women cannot be in spaces of authority and that men will be in those spaces for them. Why? In order to protect them, to shield them from the experience they have. But what does that actually do? Oh, it keeps women from being in positions of authority and leadership. For sure. And so protection language, I think, often masks control. It's funny you say masks, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like pun not intended on that no, one. <laughs> I mean, people, you know, people are on the streets, you know, or I, I'm in Orange County, uh, California, and um, Orange County is not taking this uh, mask order seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you go out and joke about it, uh, there's these two guys that went out and, and uh, tried to give free masks away. And people were going crazy. They were saying, don't take away my rights and, and F you. And, and like, they were so upset over a mask. It's like, all I'm asking you to do is cover your mouth when you sneeze. I mean, that's really what, Yeah. but the idea that that is perceived, it's masking control. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is a, you're going to, you're going to harass me for this, but it reminds me of another French thinker. Um, oh no. A, a postmodern French thinker named Michel Foucault. And uh, Foucault wrote specifically about power. This is like his field of thought was power. And he, and this is, this is relevant, I promise. He talks about the development of what he calls the panopticon, which is like the all seeing government that it that, sees everything. It controls everything. That's a word for the douche jar, I think. Yeah. It, I'll put I'll put money in it when we're done with the show. I promise. Okay. Panopticon. Uh, Panopticon. That's his term, uh, okay. and it's like all-seeing, basically. And he says this is where it's relevant. So Foucault says that the, the Panopticon develops in government's attempts during the Enlightenment period, 17th century, attempts to manage the plague. And so, in order to manage the plague that was buffeting Europe during the 17th century, governments exercised maximum levels of control. They built really efficient hierarchies. They controlled the movement of bodies. They controlled the movement of cities. And the notion was what? To protect. Mm. But Foucault's argument is like, oh, that never stopped. Like we never, we never, once the Panopticon develops, it doesn't go away. We don't stop, the government doesn't stop exercising that kind of control. It actually just gets more efficient, more insidious, more built into the systems around us. So, Thanks for that French story. You know, I love the French. I, yeah, I knew that you would like that. <laughs> now, just to clear up misconceptions from episode one, I, I do have a couple of friends that are French and we do enjoy um, <laughs> wine. Is this your and, apology tour? <laughs> we do enjoy wine. Um, although a French wine isn't my favorite. It would be Spanish wine. But anyway, regardless of that fact, it seems like, of course, this, you know, the, the idea that of government doing something under the guise of something else is a problem. Is that happening here? Yes. And he, and, and I say that as a person who believes that you should wear a mask 
I believe that the government should invest in testing. Like, I believe those things. So please hear me. Like, I believe that COVID-19 is a serious threat and that we should wear a mask and do what we need to to end it. Mm -hmm. But I also am hesitant and wary of a government that in the name of protection increases its authority to control human bodies. That's a big topic right there. (laughs) I mean, and like, I also don't like Trump. And so it feels even more important to say that under the Trump administration, but uh, like you should also feel that under the Obama administration or if Joe Biden wins under the Joe Biden administration or under the Bernie administration, like a government with the power to regulate and control human bodies for the sake of quote unquote protection, I think is problematic. You know, I have to agree with pretty much every word you said there. Like Nailed I, it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that if... If the government in any form tries to control our bodies in the name of protection, I think that mm-hmm. that's wrong. Where Where is the line today? Like, are, is there a line? Because it seems that's like it's just question. getting worse. Yeah. What, and what do you mean in terms of it's, it seems like it's getting worse? Like the government overreach seems like it's getting worse or... What part seems worse? Well, it seems like that whether whether you're conservative, uh, like, and I'm I'm talking when I say conservative or liberal, I'm talking about extreme uh, conservatism or extreme liberalism. Whether on 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 both of those sides, because extreme conservatism essentially goes towards fascism, and extreme liberalism, of course, goes to communism. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that is that a dumb thing to say? No, that's a, I think okay. generally true way of thinking about it. Right. So extremism on any side leads to what I'd say control. And so are we seeing that in, you know, I feel like that every time I open a browser or look at social media, it's just getting more and more extreme and they're taking more Mm -hmm. and more measures, they being the government, to control in the name of protection. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I tell another French story? I'm (laughs) so sorry. I'm so sorry. What do you you just read French books all day? Is that what you do? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, but this one is really relevant. So okay. there's a woman, there's a woman named Simone Vey, who is a French academic. She is in England during, um, like the end of world war two. And the French government asks her like, Hey, what do we do? Like we were conquered by Nazi Germany. What do we do? How do we get out of this? And she goes and teaches at Oxford. She studies at Oxford. But the thing that makes her so fascinating is that while she's teaching, she's also, hanging out with like coal miners and she'll go work in the mines and she'll go work on the docks, which is, was unheard of. Yeah. Oh, to- totally unheard of. And she makes this argument. So she's using the, the illustration of the pneumatic drill, which is like an air pressure drill that was right. invented for miners to use to open up, you know, additional shafts, or whatever. So it's like, and she's do like that, watching it. Again. Okay, cool. Thanks. Uh, I actually don't know what a pneumatic drill sounds like, <laughs> um, but I have it in my head. You know, it's like the thing because it's like yeah, an air yeah. pressure drill and she's watching it get used and how much it hurts workers. Like it, it destroys their bodies like physically. And she, she then begins to do this. She think through this idea. She's like, you know, it's fascinating. And she's like, this was invented to help people, but the people who invented it are so disconnected from life on the ground that they don't realize that it's actually ruining people's bodies. And she's like, that's actually the thing about the government is she's like both um, like liberal democracies, uh, communist like dictatorships, which she sees that in Russia because that's under mm-hmm. the, she's watching Stalin or even like what they have in France. She's like, all of them have the same problem. They're so disconnected from the people on the ground that they're making solutions that actually hurt people. Hmm. 
it's like the pneumatic drill. It's a mechanism of control and efficiency that is named to help people, but all it does is actually hurt people. It's a really depressing story. But, <laughs> but I mean, how many things in our lives are like that? You know? Totally. <sighs> Last words on the Forbes topic. Is this some front? Is this the beginning of a conspiracy to control our lives, to take us into either fascism or communism? <laughs> I would say, I would say, no, it's not a conspiracy. And that's actually what makes it so dangerous hmm. is that it's way more complicated than that because it's good intentions that also lead to a government that has more control of your body and more control of the bodies of the vulnerable. And that is problematic. And it's not a conspiracy. That's what happens in governments. So it's like we're, we're, we have bought tickets and we are watching Joe Rogan's fight. Yeah, that's a reference I don't understand, but yes. <laughs> you know, he, do, he does the United fighting the things that, you know, the fighting. We're on Fight Island. Yeah, Fight Island. <laughs> yeah, and we knew that it was a bad idea before we bought tickets and it's just playing out exactly like we thought it would. Well, I hope that we can change that outcome. But I think we can. By either betting on it or (laughs) (laughs) not change our outcome. No, I hope we can change that outcome. I hope that we can uh, be aware that some of these things may not be a conspiracy. They're out in front of our faces. And I think a lot of Americans are looking at that way. Totally. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. That ends our second episode of A Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy. Come back again next week. Uh, Oh, and if you like or hate this podcast, please leave a comment. We like love mail just as much as hate mail. So let us know. Share this with your friends. And oh, by the way, this is important. If you want to know more about the almost Dr. Morrison right here, go to johnnyis.com. Or if you want to know about myself, some music or some creative projects I'm in, you can find a little bit about me at christiansurge.com. See ya. See ya. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.